Welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks. Today we're talking with Blake Mobley about his new book, Terrorism and Counterintelligence, How Terrorist Groups Elude Detection. This is a book that sort of turns the perspective on its head rather than looking at how the counter-terrorist agencies operate. This is actually looking at how the terrorist groups operate themselves. So it looks at what tactics they employ to ensure that agencies who are watching them or trying to infiltrate their groups won't succeed? How do they keep their own operations secret? And Blake also looks at uh, environmental factors and social factors that um, enhance the ability of a terrorist group to ensure that it can maintain its own security. It's quite fascinating and he um, provides a bit of a theoretical outline at the beginning as well as quite a few case studies of major terrorist groups to illustrate how this works in practice and sort of test his theory. This book is laid out in a very, very structured fashion. Uh, Some people may not like that. I actually found it quite good. In fact, if anybody who was listening was thinking of doing some form of thesis or doctoral thesis, then I would start with this book as a good model in which to explain things in a manner that uh, somebody marking a thesis would like to see it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. Um, I'm your host, Mark Locks, from Brisbane in Australia. And today we're talking with Blake Mobley, who is in California. And we're going to talk about his new book, Terrorism and Counterintelligence, How Terrorist Groups Elude Deduction. So uh, good morning, Blake, or good afternoon in your sense. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all right. I thoroughly enjoy these interviews. So it's great to talk to people from the other side of the planet on a regular basis. (laughs) That's great. Okay, so to start off then, let's uh, hear about yourself and what your background is and how you started doing research in the this area and how you ended up writing this book. Well, you know, a long way back, sort of going back to the uh, undergraduate years, I uh, studied social psychology and I, I think that was probably the first uh, introduction and interest into um, how the, you know, the human mind uh, works and how it wraps itself around some complex problems and um, from there, got interested in, in policy issues um, and got a policy degree uh, at the Kennedy School um, and uh, sort of uh, fell in love with the idea of uh, working for the U.S. government and uh, in all its glory and um, spent uh, some time at the, uh, at the CIA um, as an analyst, as a counterintelligence analyst. Right. And really, uh, you know, the work in that space is all about uh, understanding uh, foreign counterintelligence threats to the U.S. and in particular clandestine organizations because those in, are typically the organizations we care about the most. If they're hiding from us, they matter. Um, uh-huh. So uh, it's a usually it's a, sometimes a useful rule of thumb. Um, but uh, yeah, and and you know, you know, I think that uh, even you know sort of deepened my interest in some of these issues. And um, and so you know, I've written the book about terrorist groups, but really, it's a book about clandestine organizations, violent clandestine organizations, and how mm-hmm. they operate their mechanics. Um, and so that's sort of the the, uh, the short background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think it's great because uh, we hear. Uh, well, sorry, we see a lot of books about organizations and whether they're large government organizations or small non-government organizations, but very rarely do we see something about how they operate internally, especially in relation to their um, counterintelligence operations. So we're always listening, you know, seeing things about the U.S. government or British government and what they do in counterintelligence, but not from the other side. 
Yeah, and you know what's what's quite interesting is it's not a hundred percent true, but um, you know it seems to me to be mostly true that if you uh, you can fit a lot of these organizations on a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum you've got you know very small, maybe even street gangs and the, the security practices they have, and then as you mm. move up the scale, you get into t- terrorist organizations and you move a little bit further up, you get into more sophisticated organized crime, the Cali cartel, things of that nature. And then at the very, very top of the spectrum, um, you have state intelligence services like the Stasi mm. or the KGB. And so really on the question of counterintelligence, I think it makes sense to to break it down um, in that fashion. Now, all those organizations do very different things and have very different missions. So you can't compare them on all aspects. But if you just slice up counterintelligence and security, uh, they rhyme. I mean, a lot of these groups do things very similarly. Um, mm. And that's a question I think is, uh, is worth trying to explore, too, is why? Why is it true that, you know, basically the Cali cartel does things pretty similar to, similarly to Abu Nudal? Why is that, yeah. why is that a process that repeats itself? And it could be that it comes down to the uh, export of methods that you know travel the world and people read and are on the internet and kind of absorb lessons. But I suspect there's also an interesting human element, a human psychological element. That is, some of these organizations naturally adapt because um, that's the normal thing that a human brain is going to do in that particular situation. And then one of the things I've been working on recently is looking at street gangs. And these are individuals who do not have lots of exposure to the canon of counterintelligence and yeah. the secret histories of the spy world. And you see very, very similar adaptations, this sort of reinvention of counterintelligence uh, right here in South Central Los Angeles, for example. So I'm becoming more convinced that there are bigger and more sort of deeper processes that generate counterintelligence strategies and pathologies, too. Yeah. Have you ever looked at... Um popular media for that because I've talked to some people who say that they classify how street gangs especially work based on there was a godfather generation then there was a scarface generation and now this is a sopranos generation so how, how much are they learning from um, what they see in the popular media you know it, it's a good question I don't know the answer I, it's absolutely true the the members of the in that community I don't have a lots of exposure to them but the, the individuals who I have had exposure to they do pay attention to that stuff. Uh, they, you know, some of them even read Sun Tzu, Art of War, and growing mm-hmm. up, they will have been exposed to some of the what you might think of as security strategies transmitted through the media or popular movies like you know Bruce Lee movies and things like that. So you hear some of that, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if if there is some learning and adaptation that um, happens, um, even if only by osmosis through some of those popular media. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating question for a different interview. I think we better get back to this particular book. <laughs> sure. um, do you want to start us off with, you actually set up a, a good uh, basis for the case studies that are in the book, where you run through the different types of um, counterintelligence that groups can use before you then go and look at the individual groups and what they had used. So do you want to talk about that and then some of these um, broader strategic issues that impact upon how they operate, such as their geography and um uh, involvement with the local community. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense to, uh, you know, first think about, you know, what do we mean when we're talking about counterintelligence? And, uh, you know, I have it defined and, you know, it, it, it's not a perfect definition, but the way I think about it is as a process or a set of activities, analysis, and decision making 
that a group engages in uh, to prevent its adversaries from acquiring accurate information about what it's up to, its, its personnel, its actions, and its plans. And the way I'd like to think about it is that you could break it down into at least uh, three stages, um, each building on the, the previous in sophistication. And the most basic, and this is true for every group I've looked at, including um, you know, non-terrorist groups, other kinds of non-state actors, is you have basic denial right at, at the bottom. And that is where the group doesn't actually uh, know about its environment anything more than you know, what maybe what it's absorbed informally. But it, it says to itself, well, we know we're being pursued, so let's start off by just recommending that none of our members interact with local law enforcement, right? So that's a basic strategy. They're not really sure if that's a huge vulnerability, but that's where they're going to get started. So basic denial, almost every group, uh, not all, but almost every group, and we can talk about some groups that don't get even this far, but most groups can do that, especially if they've been around for a little bit of time. They'll have a have uh, created that basic denial strategy. From there, you move into what I'd call adaptive denial, and that is where, uh, in essence, the group has begun collecting information about its adversary's intelligence platform. So it understands that the adversary, yes, is in fact using contacts with law enforcement to get inside the group or learn about it. And then from there, it makes more specific recommendations and develops very specific strategies to combat that adversary platform. So that's adaptive. It's adapting to a real threat and not just kind of spinning its wheels or guessing about its threats. And you see that. I mean, actually, that's not so uncommon. Uh, groups, particularly those that suffer at the hand of the adversary, you know, a, a painful drug raid or, uh, you know, a strike somewhere off in the desert, and they figure there's some sort of even if informal kind of uh, damage assessment and, and adapt from there. The most sophisticated level is, is one step above, and that is what I'd call covert manipulation. Often people refer to this as offensive counterintelligence. I'm, I'm not as enamored with that term because I think it's a little bit uh, fuzzy, but I think covert manipulation makes more sense to me, and that's where not only do you understand... Are we just losing your sound there? Might be my phone. Let me just power my phone yeah. Um So I'll go back a bit. So covert yeah. manipulation essentially is this process where you understood the adversary's collection mechanisms, and then you're going to actively go out and manipulate them. You're going to send right. signals into the adversary. So that's the framework I use for all the groups, and I try to evaluate each group um, along that sophistication and I think, uh, for the most part you re you don't see covert manipulation very frequently it's actually pretty rare uh, mm. uh, but again like I said you see adaptive denial and, and lots of basic denial yeah um, uh, and what about the then you also talk about their their place in the community and how that affects how they can carry out their counterintelligence yeah so they're really you know, there are probably many more um, uh, factors that, that influence counterintelligence. But, you know, to my not to research I did, I, I found three to be most, most interesting and, and sort of most uh, compelling as drivers of outcomes. And they are uh, what basically what you said, you know, how they interact with the community, what I call popular support and publicity. So that's a huge, that makes a huge impact on how well they do counterintelligence. And the other two are, whether or not they control territory, 
So that's number two. And the third is uh, what their organizational structure looks like, whether it's tight or loose. So those are three factors. And each of those, uh, from the research I've done, sort of embodies a trade-off. That is, no matter where you sit on any one of those factors, whether you have loose or tight command, whether you have controlled territory or not, it will deeply impact the counterintelligence outcome. So what I do in the book is walk through each for every case study and try to tease out specifically uh, what are the disadvantages and advantages the group accrues from each. So mm -hmm. to into the publicity interaction with the community, one example of a trade-off is groups that invest heavily in reaching out to communities um, and engaging them and generating popular support. Absolutely, you see benefits in, insofar as the community interested in turning back to the group and offering them uh, support. In some cases, it's what some would call non-denunciation, that they're simply not going to reveal their interaction with members of the group to the police if they're asked. A really good example of this were the hen patrols uh, in Northern Ireland. These were community members, and usually they were women who were had you know excuses to be out on the street and wherever they were. Uh, if they noticed a patrol coming through an area, they'd grab their you know, trash can lids and start banging on the trash cans. And you could, uh, you know, allegedly, I wasn't there when this was happening, but <laughs> I talked to in the accounts that I've read, you could hear this uh, very, you know, many, many blocks away. And so uh, the PIRA, which was operating in, in that area, would know to, you know, hide itself or cease activity at that point or move to, to a, a more secure space. So the community is helping them, right? They've reached out, they've provided some service, or at the very least, they're not as offensive as the occupying force community. And sometimes that's a race that, uh, you know, a race away from the bottom um, which is actually not so uncommon. Um, and then you'd ask, okay, so that's just an unadulterated good for the group. Well, not exactly. And that's where the trade-off comes in. Groups give up lots and lots of details about their operations and their personnel when they uh, interact with the community. That's a point of exposure. And, you know, you see this, or you saw this with um, the videos that, uh, that Bin Laden and Zawahiri made available um, to Al Jazeera. And so, uh, you know, everybody's making guesses about where they're sitting when they're doing this. You can know something about the state of their health based on, you know, where they look. So they're giving that up. That's data that people are using to make decisions um, to better target the group or better understand its interests and vulnerabilities. And sometimes they're information warfare vulnerabilities. You can tell exactly what the group wants by what it's saying to its population. It's, it wants to convey a particular message. So now you know exactly what to do. Um, to undermine that message. So that's another kind of point of exposure. And for each of the factors, there are these really deep trade-offs, these core trade-offs that occur. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, what that, you know, the, the takeaway, I think, is that's good news for uh, the U.S. government and other governments fighting clandestine organizations because what it means is that they can never find a position that's unassailable. They will always be vulnerable, no matter where they are, you can take advantage of it. You can exploit a vulnerability and, and, and manipulate them in ways that you know, produces even more information about them um, and helps with the more operational focus. Right, right. Um, what about location? How does location make a difference? In fact, so protected territory, I should say. Yeah, or, yeah, what I would call controlled territory or protected territory is fine, too. I think that, that's also pretty accurate. That, in fact, I think is probably the most important variable. Uh, and one that has the biggest impact on counterintelligence. So 
Um, when you uh, have a controlled space and it's, uh, you know, everyone in that space basically recognizes that there's a policing element to that force uh, that you've, you've set upon an area. So, uh, for example, um, going to something like, um, you know, Fatah uh, in the 60s didn't really control its territory. Um, and then over time, it gained space in, in places like in Lebanon, where it actually physically regulated activity and could you know, at least, at the very least, understand who was coming in and out of space. So that's what we mean by control territory. Uh, it's more than just safe haven. It's you know, almost physically controlling the space. And the advantage of that is um, really, really uh, important so that, you know, picture a group that can question people in its area of operations, keep track of who's coming in and out. And that's really how the spy business is done, you know, physical contact. So you should be able to figure out who among your members is traveling a little bit too frequently outside of the controlled territory, um, who's uh, potentially making contact with the adversary. Um, and, you know, you, you imagine all the advantages that a state security service has within its own space. It can arrest people, it can detain them and question them. So huge benefits to the intelligence process by controlling physically controlling the space. Now, the downside is that uh, when you're concentrated in a, in a small space, your adversary knows exactly where to point all of its intelligence platforms. It knows exactly where to monitor who's coming in and out and can use all those advantages that accrue to the controller of the space uh, to understand its operations and its signatures and things like that. So um, I'd say, though, uh, almost in all cases, it you know there are some distinct disadvantages to controlling territory, but it's almost always good. And that you have to couple with all the other findings in the counterterrorism literature about the benefits of controlling space. So being able to train members, including doing counterintelligence training, but also basic training, uh, raising money, all these kinds of things. Controlled space is really you know I'd say if you're in 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 the business of doing counterterrorism or counter narcotics. Uh, eliminating or undermining a group's ability to hold hold territory is really really critical, and counterintelligence just reinforces that aspect. I think in space. Yeah, I think controlling territory was also one of Mao's uh, steps in his insurgency I, stages. So I mean, this is something that's yeah reiterated in so many in so many. You see that value of that, and SCI mm. uh, yeah, just uh, just furthers that case. Yep. And finally, you've got structure, which is something that uh, I know I've done a lot of work on in relation to organized crime. So structure, in organized crime, we talk about it as a resiliency factor that a tight structure produces better control and efficiency, but can also reduce um, your resilience because it's a lot easier to infiltrate and um, attack a well-structured hierarchical organization. Yeah, absolutely. I, that, that's, I couldn't have said it better. That, and that's exactly the finding that Groups that are, are tightly commanded um, have all kinds of benefits when it comes to getting everybody on the same page, producing discipline and enhancing coordination. And the way I look at it is all from, again, the security perspective. So if I find out that the adversary has a very particular method of, uh, of monitoring me in one space, I can immediately communicate that to a distant cell somewhere and say, hey, uh, fellows, by the way, uh, you need to stay off whatever it is, this device or this kind of, you have to, you know, be aware of, you know, physical surveillance. That's, you know, some critical link in their intelligence process. Um, if you don't have a tightly commanded group, then 
uh, it's very difficult uh, sometimes even to convince the people you're talking to that you're an honest broker. Um, so if you don't have that leadership um, flow and, and, and the sort of unquestioned, in some cases, response to um, directives that uh, in, in a way improve the modus operandi, then um, it's very rare to see groups adapting efficiently. Um, the downside, of course, as you mentioned, is uh, for one, when you become sort of a bureaucracy and everybody starts doing the same thing, and in a number of cases that I looked at, you saw, you know, for example, even uh, groups adapting or adopting the same codes. Um, so once the adversary cracked uh, codes coming out of one cell or one division of the group, they could apply those to other cells and, and crack many wider nets open. Um, and uh, the, the other downside, which is significant when it occurs, it's not always uh, inevitable, but it, when it does occur, the sort of penetration, of, particularly the penetration of the counterintelligence aspect of the group. So the I is a really good example of this where they operated for many years in kind of a loose fashion, um, and then the mid-70s tightened things up because basically it was a response to the brutal interrogations they were um, subjected to. Um, at Castle Ray, and they said, okay, we need to train our guys in counter-interrogation. Um, so that was part of it. They tightened things up, and they did very well. a document that leaked um, soon thereafter where the, the British officers involved in these operations admitted that these guys, that the PIRA had tightened up and it was doing much better and you know, basically leaking much less information. But there was an interesting guy uh, who was part of, what the IRA called its nutting department, which was essentially its counter-espionage function, this guy Frank Scapatici. And uh, he was uh, more or less in charge of the, uh, the role in the IRA, which was to find spies, to find British spies, and to eliminate them. And uh, he eventually became a walk-in. He, he walked into um, the, the, the British uh, security apparatus and said, you know, this is who I am and I'm willing to spy. And he was exercising um, a personal vendetta. Uh, and that was something that was um, uh, made, made clear in, in a very interesting account in a book called Steak Knife, uh, which I highly recommend. Um, but he, he was a, a good example of and a, a deadly counterintelligence penetration. He um, operated for many years. And because he was head of the security department, he had access to all the most sensitive records that the PRA was keeping. He knew uh, all these suspect spies, and he could go back to the British and say, this guy's under suspicion, and this guy's under suspicion. And therefore, uh, you know, in a way, what the British could do with him was to redirect investigations away from real spies, and he could finger the wrong, you know, some guy who was innocent, and keep the uh, true spies that the British were using um, active and out of harm's way. And he did that in, in, a, in a large, in at least a, a handful of cases. So yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a good time. Let, let's actually move on and talk about um, the PRIRA and how all these things actually apply to them. So, yeah, yeah go on. Um, you know, the, the example of the uh, controlled uh, territories, uh, a, a pretty good one for them, too. They, they had some really uh, strongly held territories, in particular in South Armagh. And one thing they were able to do pretty effectively was uh, use that control of the space to confuse uh, the British uh, security forces that were coming after them. And so one example 
in, in South Armagh, they would move these street signs around. So anytime patrols would come in, uh, they would end up relatively confused about it. And I've, I've been through there and it's, uh, it's not an easy to navigate without, without some help. So in a space where the British couldn't naturally move in quickly, uh, they weren't familiar with it, uh, at least initially, uh, it was very intimidating to move into that space and to have to be looking over their shoulders on every corner and um, it's um, it, it's a it's a naughty area to have to move through. And the other thing, you know, you see these, and there's still a sign there um, where it's a it looks like a road, you know, a road work sign, and it's a, a guy, a sniper, holding a, a a sniper rifle in the air, and it says "sniper at work." And so there are these formation uh, warfare campaigns that they also wage psychological warfare um, against the British uh, security forces. So. That was all, you know, very much in their favor. Um, easy for the British to penetrate that space, but um, the British at the time <clears throat> knew exactly where all the all the goods were. You know, it's um, they knew exactly where to target their energy. So when they were prioritizing, where are we looking for to develop informants? Where are we looking to understand the technologies and some of the some of the operations the PRA would be engaging in? They knew right where to go. They, they knew to focus on that space. And so that was the, the downside. You saw that pretty clearly. Um, when it came to organizational structure, it's probably the, the most um, compelling case um, for just what you were describing, which is when you tighten up, uh, you suffer pretty, pretty greatly unless you can monitor and keep out penetrations and actively shift your modus operandi to avoid becoming bureaucratized and predictable. Um, and in the 70s, again, like I said, you had this phase where they really quickly moved to these active, um, these active uh, terrorist cells from a sort of diffused and sort of amorphous organization. And uh, really clearly you see that trade-off um, play out there. When it came to uh, publicity and popular support, it's also an interesting case where I mean, th this was something that they didn't make any large changes at any point in their existence, moving from totally underground to totally exposed. Um, so you, did, you don't get that sense of a natural experiment where you can really compare two periods. But uh, absolutely, they, they had trouble um, managing that, that trade-off. So for example, um, there were times when they wanted to be out uh, um, displaying their rifles and generating popular support, and they would actually march. And, and these were you know, active members of the IRA marching in the open street. And uh, what they found was that it was very hard um, to go back underground once these members had been out and exposed. Very difficult um, to suppress what the information that's already out there. You know, you think about even today, um, anybody looking on the internet, uh, you know, you do a search on yourself, um, all this information available through these different services, it's very difficult to suppress all that data that's out there about every one of us. You know, once it's there, it kind of makes its mark. So. And what they would need to do in that case is uh, develop a whole cadre of uh, what they call volunteers, essentially members of their group, but they called them volunteers, um, who were unknown to the police and they'd have to cultivate this new group. But then, of course, the downside of that is you're relying on these young guys who don't have any criminal records and uh, they don't have any experience. So, uh, And you actually see this with a number of groups and you, you kind of hear this, this theme that once you come out and expose uh, the group, it's very hard to go back underground. FOP has a good example of that, too. And the Black September is an example of one group that was relatively good at keeping itself completely off the map, 
but it had the benefit of not having to worry about raising its own funds and having its own popular support because the PLO and Fatah kind of did that for them. So, uh, you know, the ideal would be to have a group that's kind of segmented from the rest uh, and really compartmented away, and that way you can protect those uh, those individuals. But um, very hard for a group to um, to keep uh, that kind of information suppressed. And uh, the benefit of being out and interacting with the population is oftentimes really important. And so uh, you also hear in the case of the IRA and in other groups, uh, when they try to stay underground, they really suffer. People understand them less. They don't understand their motives. And uh, when the push comes to shove and someone has to decide whether or not that latest attack was a good thing or a bad thing, they maybe start deciding in favor of the law enforcement agents who are actively out there and doing their own information uh, campaigns and, and generating popular support. Yeah. I suppose um, the IRA would be similar to groups like Hamas and Hezbollah who are actually participating in general elections. And if they're going to succeed in a general election, they have to have a public profile, which, as you say, would then complicate things further as far as a counterintelligence perspective worked. This is a really interesting, um, I, I suppose, unintended consequence for some of these groups that um, – you, uh, you have not only then the political individuals who become exposed, um, but then even speaking kind of forensically, once you know that they are a part of this group, you can kind of work back through their histories and see who if they've had contact with. If you know something about the community, it's much easier then to understand what are the spaces. And I think most groups probably underestimate how easy it is to, to uh, do some of that work. But probably the... If you have to go in that direction, uh, this is where controlled territory is really critical and interesting and important. Uh, Hezbollah, for example, uh, by controlling that space, uh, has a much better handle on who's paying attention to who. So if you're coming in and asking questions about certain members and where they are, it's much easier to keep track of that. So uh, if you have to go down the political road, you see groups being more successful when they control that space. We also may see groups uh, deciding at some point that the uh, the objective of maintaining total clandestinity is not that important anymore. Uh, hmm. You're a political group and you're trying to generate popular support and you've made it to the point where you're having elections and some of your members are actually public officials. It, it may not be a great idea to be way out there having still maintaining you know, large clandestine networks and doing things on the sly. I mean – at some point, you have to account for that too. So you can, I can imagine some decision making in some of these groups that would, be, you know, along the lines of, well, yeah, we could do these operations and stay clandestine, but maybe it makes more sense actually to be a little bit more open. So in a in a strange way, you can see some of those pressures. Uh, you could see how they they might emerge. I've got to uh, ask you about the group that the IRA were running in prison, where they were doing their own interrogations for new members as they arrived in the prison. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing. So prisons uh, in general are, are really quite fascinating. And the, the, the stuff I'm doing most recently working with um, some of the gangs in particular, this one gang called Florencia 13, um, same, you see the same kind of habits and use of the prison system as, uh, not, you know, in the case of the IRA, you could almost call it like a think tank. With the gangs, it's less formal. But they have a lot of time on their hands. And they constantly have this, uh, you know, influx of people who've been arrested and who've had extended exposure to law enforcement. Um, so it's really interesting. And I don't know 
the cases of Hamas um, as well. But there was um, an interesting book called Son of Hamas. And having read that and, and seen uh, some of the, the cases that came out through that book, I, it, it also had sort of an echo of, of these properties that uh, you have, uh, you know, fairly, in some cases, senior members who um, have lots of time and are able to think through and do some of what you might call damage control, damage assessments. You know, what when this member arrives, what did he tell law enforcement about his role? And so, you know, a, a good loyal member should um, come in and be relatively, um, uh, you know, open. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll probably protect themselves, but um, they, they may not understand all the intricacies of the intelligence collection apparatus and so may not hide the right things if they are trying to hide something and not realize what they're revealing when they talk about, um, oh yeah, I did talk about, uh, you know, Michael and it was, you know, they, they're not thinking through this because they don't have the full picture. So, mm -hmm. uh, they um, were actually in, in some cases very cool and uh, they had covered things like piano wire and, um, things that would be involved in actual, you know, torture. So they would go after some of these guys pretty aggressively. Um, and, and in many cases, it, you know, it's probably fueled by paranoia. So I, I don't think the IRA had a system where they were really efficiently using um, these debriefings and interrogations to uncover all the right spies and, and you know, avoid these sort of false positives. But one of the benefits uh, of the system is that when you are – part of that group and you're arrested and you end up in jail or in the prison system, you understand that this is one of the things that's going to happen to you. So you're probably pretty careful about what you say uh, when you first get arrested. And so there's also a nice deterrent factor for the groups. And, and so in, a, in an interesting uh, kind of twist of things, it helps these groups to publicize that this is a process that's ongoing and, uh, and probably prevents some members from making decisions that uh, end up being adverse for the group. Hmm. Well, I think uh, we can't go through this interview without talking about Al-Qaeda. So um, how did your review of Al-Qaeda look after you applied your uh, different basic themes to them? Al-Qaeda is very interesting because um, on the one hand, they, they sort of, you know, fit into the traditional terrorist group uh, definition. Um, and uh, insofar as, you know, they conduct operations, they have fundraising um, methods, and they do things in sort of regard to document forgery in ways that are very similar to a lot of groups. But um, they're also kind of unique insofar as they have lots and lots of operations in lots of places. I mean, they're more geographically dispersed with real centers of gravity than I think any other group or, or were at the, at the period I looked at, which was, you know, roughly the 80s to... Um, early 2000s. And um, so that creates some pretty interesting advantages, but also some interesting disadvantages. When they control space, uh, like they did in Afghanistan, things were going pretty well for them, but that's also right before all this heat came down on them. Uh, one interesting way they were able to use uh, space in Sudan was they had such a close relationship um, with the government of Sudan and this is information available in the 9-11 Commission Report, too. They have a great account of this. But um, they actually had uh, access to the passport control offices and other sort of customs processes that the government was engaging in. So they could immediately uh, look at who were the people coming in and out of Sudan, who were of interest to them, not everybody, but people in sort of the jihadist sphere. 
And the government of Sudan got something out of it too because um, they were, you know, sort of had expert opinions on some of the people coming in and out. So um, huge advantage for them to be able to, to be a part of a, a you know, in, in league with a government that had control of the space. They didn't actually control that terrain, but were able to add through proxy, um, gain some of those advantages. Um, and then you kind of get to this question of organizational structure um, and how that impacted some of their counterintelligence efforts. Um, you know, having a dispersed uh, sort of what, what uh, Peter Bergen called the decentralization of operations, but the centralization of command. Uh, on the one hand, the feedback, um, <clears throat> particularly when they were under pressure from these dispersed cells back to the core was highly suppressed. So they were not able to tr quickly transmit lessons learned from those operations back to the central leadership. And over time, what happened was uh, very smartly, the central uh, leadership began to be very careful about how their communications were conducted. And so used couriers and, and, and other things like that that essentially slowed down the transmission of information to secure it. And enormous disadvantages associated with that, much slower reaction times to law enforcement uh, efforts and, and other information that uh, applied to counterintelligence in far-flung places. Um, and, uh, but you could argue it was a worthwhile trade-off because couriers are much easier to vet and you could monitor the movement information and access to the information as long as you could trust your courier. Um, so that was another advantage um, of, of having that, uh, that system that was decentralized. But uh, it's one that would have been very difficult for them to do widespread uniform counterintelligence training within. Just very hard to know, A, that members understand the counterintelligence um, approach, the, uh, the counterintelligence mandate you have, and then be to, uh, to monitor it and to, to penalize people who are, who are violating it. So a very interesting case where you sort of stress a lot of these different factors and, and, and the outcomes are quite interesting. So having written this book, your final chapter is terrorism and counterintelligence. What are your recommendations for agencies around the world when they're dealing with terrorist groups? That's a great question. I, the first thing I would do, and this is my bias having been a counterintelligence analyst, but the role of CI analysis in this whole process, when you're attacking clandestine organizations, uh, to make it a priority and not necessarily the very first thing you do, but absolutely a, a core part of the overall enterprise to understand how these groups do counterintelligence and security and uh, how they collect intelligence, and then as the next step, how do you manipulate that um, and use some of these common pathologies to disrupt them? So um, there are lots of good cases of groups that have uh, torn themselves apart from the inside out without really any prompting whatsoever um, because they're so paranoid and stirring that pot, uh, not always the right approach, and there's some distinct disadvantages to doing that. But when it makes sense, for example, in the case of Abu Nidal, um, you can, with very little energy, um, generate lots and lots of counterintelligence problems simply by producing the impression um, that, that the group is uh, penetrated or that it's being monitored in ways that it doesn't understand. Um, this is the stuff that, for anybody who's 
a uh, familiar with uh, espionage literature and the Cold War, this is second nature. I mean, these are things that were done all the time, and and the Stasi and the KGB are, you know, expert at this kind of psychological warfare. It, that's offensive counterintelligence too. It's just manipulating the adversary by by scaring it into thinking that it's being monitored in a way that's going to compromise its operations, and that to me is such a, a powerful way to think about disrupting these organizations. And sometimes they'll do it themselves if you just feed them the right kind of disinformation, or sometimes you're actually feeding them accurate information. And that's not to say that that's the whole project and that that'll get you across the finish line. But it seems to me that needs to be a part, a core part, um, the uh, operation designed to disrupt clandestine organizations. Great. Uh Thanks. I mean, I love this book. Um, I've been recommending it to the lecturers here who teach intelligence units to our undergrads and postgrads. So hopefully it's going to be picked up for teaching as well. But uh, so the traditional final question, um, what are you actually working on now? So uh, as I mentioned, the, the thing that fascinates me now is um, looking at gangs, uh, in particular transnational gangs, how they do security uh, and counterintelligence. And what I've noticed with these gangs and with um, other groups like them, uh, and, and, and even more generally sort of violent clandestine organizations, is the, the primacy and the premium they put on uh, being violent and uh, showing that um, they're capable of using violence to intimidate their enemies, both internally and externally. And, and that's been a striking thing to see that this cult of violence that dominates some of these groups. And some of it uh, is resulting in real benefits to the group's operations and its improved security. But there's actually a good amount of it that uh, is uh, undertaken for the sake of undertaking violence. And, and that's been fascinating to see that it's, it's not always directly linked to some operational benefit, but that it becomes an end into itself. Um, so that, that's something I've been diving into uh, recently, and um, it, it's been very interesting to look as we, you know, sort of introduce that idea of the spectrum, to look way, you know, down on the left-hand side of the spectrum to primordial counterintelligence to see how it evolves, what's pushing it, how does it um, come to play a role in the group, where does it fail, um, and uh, ultimately I'd like to go to the other end of the spectrum and do the same thing and, and think about some of the commonalities and um, what is it about, particularly in terms of extremist organizations, how they do this? But mm. the gang, the gang, uh, foreign. Yep. So it's sort of an anthropology of counterintelligence. <laughs> yeah, it is now. It's a great anthropology. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Look, Blake, thank you very much for the interview today. I. I highly recommend the book to everybody. Anyone who's doing anything in, in the intelligence field or in terrorism studies should read this book because I thought I knew a lot and uh, I learned a lot from this. So thank you very much for the interview. You have been listening to New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime and our interview with Blake Mobley about his new book, Terrorism and Counterintelligence. I hope you enjoyed the interview.